I want to invite all our listeners to join our Facebook group. You can find us on Facebook under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is a public group. Everyone is welcome, so please join in. You can find out about upcoming episodes in advance. You can submit questions to our upcoming guests. So please go check us out under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. I think with cyber, we, we tend to always focus on the last battle. There is a new set of targets out there that we, we don't expect. I think you know, some people are beginning to pay attention to the census. When you look at malware, you can't figure out its intentions. You can only figure out its capability. The other side, just as in the nuclear world, could miscalculate your intentions. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen. And today we're talking about cybersecurity, both in context of election hacking, which has been much in the news recently, as well as taking a look at the broader issues of cybersecurity and how we can respond to them. We're going to do two back-to-back interviews today. You'll hear from Adam Siegel at the Council on Foreign Relations and also David Sanger from the New York Times. Just a note as we get going that we caught David Sanger in the Denver airport in between flights, so that you'll hear a little bit of background noise for that interview as well. I'm joined by Adam Siegel, a U.S. cybersecurity expert who serves as the Ira A. Lippman Chair in Emerging Technologies and National Security, and who is also Director of the Digital and Cyberspace Policy Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. He has a, a book on the subject that is The Hacked World Order, How Nations Fight, Trade, Maneuver, and Manipulate in the Digital Age. Welcome, Adam. It's great to have you on. Uh, it's great to be here. So since the recent Helsinki summit between President Trump and President Putin, there's obviously been a tremendous focus in the press about what happened in the U.S. election. And a lot of the press discussion has been whether or not President Trump accepts the consensus of the U.S. intelligence community. I want to set that issue aside and go beyond that controversy to look more deeply into the issue of cybersecurity and elections and what the threats are and what can be done to address the threat. So I want to start, Adam, with a fundamental question of why was the U.S. so vulnerable to this kind of attack? Well, I I think it was a a kind of a fundamental assumption that we had uh, in agreement with the Russians about what type of cyber activities were legitimate. Um, We knew that the Russians, along with the Chinese and others, were conducting uh, widespread cyber espionage. We knew the Russians had hacked into the State Department, into the White House. They had targeted elections. But we thought it was primarily for information gathering. We didn't think they were going to move to trying to uh, influence the elections, even though even though we knew that they had been active with their neighbors. We just thought that the, they would limit their targets to kind of their neighbors and to Europe and would not target the United States. Now, when you say that they, you know, already hacked into the White House, uh, one could imagine that that would set off all kinds of, of red flags. Um, you know, why, why, when we saw that kinds of activities, did the, at the time, the Obama administration just assume that, well, this is intelligence uh, gathering, but it's not which sounds like when you're hacking into the White House, a pretty significant problem on its own. But why didn't that trigger more of a response? Well, again, I I think we were trying uh, broadly to set what we thought were the norms of behavior in cyberspace. And we we were not just talking to the Russians, right? We were also talking to the Chinese about what legitimate hacking looks like. And 
the U.S. was trying to create a distinction between kind of good hacking and, and bad hacking with the Chinese. And so good hacking is the type of hacking that the United States did, which is primarily political and military espionage. And bad hacking is what the Chinese were doing, which was industrial espionage. So I think one of the reasons why you know we weren't happy that the Russians were hacking into the White House or the State Department, but we didn't do a lot about it, it was, well, because the U.S. was doing it fairly extensively um, to potential adversaries. And we didn't want to kind of call that kind of behavior out because we were clearly doing it as well. So it sounds like in that, we didn't really even imagine that it could be that this kind of hacking for offensive means to influence election was was really in the realm of what people thought um, someone might do. The kinds of norms that we were setting up um, didn't involve this. I think that's right. I think, you know, in the U.S., we had a very kind of narrow focus on what we were calling cybersecurity, right? So how do you keep an attacker out of your devices? Um, how do you protect the confidentiality, integrity, and assurance of the data? Um, and the Russians and Chinese primarily talk about information security, right? So how do you do all of those first things? How do you protect cybersecurity? But also, how do you think about uh, how information is used uh, to influence political discussions inside a country's uh, information space or, or cyberspace? Um, and so that, I think, was a kind of different way of framing the, the problem. So. If at that time, you know, there was this assumption about uh, about hacking and its purposes, clearly um, after 2016 and, and other subsequent events and, and uh, uh, hacking and, and, and intervention in other elections, including in, in European countries, uh, our understanding of how these capabilities can be used has, has been enlarged. What have the responses been? Is there now a set of tools, processes, um, routines to counter this kind of activity? Well, I think we're identifying those. I think we, we've broken the problem down now into a, into a set of, uh, of tools and, and policy responses. I think, you know, first of all, we, want, we think about how do we protect the actual electoral system, voting systems, uh, voter logs, th those types of things. And then second, how do we uh, think about influence operations and, and social media in particular? And within those two categories, we are slowly developing a set of um, policy tools and responses. Plus, how do we message to potential adversaries that there are going to be costs uh, for influencing or trying to uh, be active in those two spaces. So let's let's break those down a little bit. Um, focusing on uh, protecting the election system itself, what kinds of uh, what kinds of capacities have been uh, have been developed, and how effectively can we? You know, we've got an election coming up, incredibly important midterm election in this country. Um, what kinds of capacities exist to uh, counter the kind of actions we saw in twenty sixteen? Well, the, I think you know the first thing that that happened was the Obama administration designated electoral systems as critical infrastructure, which hadn't been the case before. So in some ways signaled both domestically and internationally that we were going to take this uh, seriously. Um, the second thing that's happened is there's been about $380 million set aside by the federal government to help states uh, protect cybersecurity. Um, and primarily what we want to do is uh, get uh, electoral systems kind of off the internet, no, have them not connected to uh, remote systems. Uh, and in particular, two things we want to happen. We want to have 
electoral systems that have backups, in particular paper backups. So if they're hacked, we can kind of uh, do uh, an accounting. And second, we want to have um, uh, random uh, post-election kind of audits in place. Um, so you can also check up. So not all states had that in place, and we're trying to build that out. So how confident can voters be going into this election that, that those kinds of uh, those, those kinds of capacities and, and preventions uh, will will be in place? Is this something that uh, you know, proceeding at a at a good pace and everybody can feel totally fine that there's no no possible problem? How much confidence should we have? Uh, not a huge amount, but better than than before. As, you know, as I mentioned. The, the $380 million was set aside. Um, there was delay. Some of the states, you know, so we, we have an incredibly decentralized voting system, right? Each state uh, runs it in the way that they see fit. Some have argued that um, the, the federal government is overreaching and the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, was overreaching. So some were slow to accept that money. Um, some who have accepted the money have used it and spent it in ways that probably is not the most uh efficient or effective way. Um, so I think there's a general feeling that we're not moving fast enough. Uh, there is a bipartisan bill in the Senate that would uh, push more money out to the states. Um, but as you, I think, kind of put your finger on the problem, um, the problem is going to be confidence. And, that, and that's a hard thing to um, build in the electorate once they think that there's problems. How do you make sure people are, that, their, that their, vote, their votes count? Um, and so we would have to move faster and, and I think kind of more robustly. So that, that's interesting. I mean, that, it raises the possibility. Uh, let's just kind of go to one of those dark scenarios that is actually suggested what, by one of our Facebook les, listeners, uh, Jared Fazio. He says, you know, if votes are hacked and found to have been changed, at what point can we declare a, an elected official illegitimate? What happens if we do so? So what happens if there is, you know, we do that post audit, we find votes have been changed, and it actually affects the outcome. What do we do at that point? Yeah, it's, it's going to be very hard, right? I mean, we are already in this political environment. I mean, if you remember in the run-up to the presidential election, the president was claiming before he won that the system was rigged. Um, and so... We, we have a, a situation of extreme political polarization where already there's going to be a default, I think, from both sides to claim that there's been uh, a rigging or some type of interference. So it, 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 it's going to be very hard um, to do that um, and have both sides, I think, accept um, the, the outcome. So given that partisan you know, environment um, that we have right now, is that affecting the ability to even address and put in some of the protections that you talked about um, earlier um, and, and creating hindrances uh, to that? Uh, it is. I think it's playing um, a larger effect on the, the second basket, on kind of social media and the role that that plays. Um, but it has, um, I think, affected the electoral security in ways that we didn't expect. I think we had thought that this is a, you know, a more bipartisan issue. And, and as I said, there is a bipartisan bill in Senate to roll out the money. Um, but it has certainly, I think, made implementation harder than kind of cybersecurity experts had thought that they said, well, you know, here we have these kind of standard procedures that would make the elections more secure. 
I don't think they expected that the political support would, would not be as forthcoming. Yeah. So let's move to that second category, that second basket of, of things, social media affecting debates and discussions in the country. Uh, what can be done uh, against that kind of interference? So here, I think, you know, primarily we've looked at two, two responses. One is um, primarily the responsibility of the tech companies, and that is uh, taking down material that is you know, disinformation or produced by Russian trolls or designed to foster social disagreements or polarization in the political environment. So there's been a lot of discussion about what the tech companies can do. And then the second is, you know, what we as individuals or consumers of this information should do. Uh, how do we educate ourselves? How do we make sure that we aren't part of the problem and, and spread the disinformation even further? So let's let's focus on tech uh, f- for a, a moment. Um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was just in the news um, yesterday about uh, questioning whether or not Facebook and other media um, uh, companies like his have a responsibility for um, screening out false news. In that case, it was Holocaust deniers. Um, to what extent is our media companies uh, really in, engaging in this issue and putting in the kind of protections uh, to, to help the public sort out what is believable and what isn't? Well, that's part of the problem, right? It's because Facebook and others have consistently said they're, they're not media companies, right? They're, they're platforms. And so as platforms, they have consistently argued that they uh, don't have a responsibility or shouldn't be in the job of censoring or taking things down. Um, you know, you can see from the reaction to Zuckerberg about his statements about Holocaust denial, is a kind of an extreme version of it, but that, that position is becoming increasingly untenable. I think we've increasingly said to the tech companies, you know, you do have a responsibility to take things down and you're going to have to play a role uh, as censors, which is you know, extremely uncomfortable for the United States both given its First Amendment freedoms and the idea that it's private companies that are playing this role as opposed to kind of Congress or, 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 or the government. Um, and then we have the other issue about the media's role in you know, spreading the information and, and how it reports on it. And, and in many ways, they've been taken advantage of by the trolls and the Russian disinformation because they uh, know that the most extreme uh, positions are going to get reported in, in a kind of effort to say, well, we have to have balance, which has not really um, served us very well. Yeah. Do you see the um, uh, media companies responding to that in, in some way and how they cover these kinds of stories so that they don't become the conduits to spread, uh, you know, these these extremist kind of lies? I think so. I think, you know, one, we've seen the media companies more willing to say this is not true or this is a lie or this is, you know, fundamentally disinformation as opposed to on the one hand, uh, on the other hand, reporting. I think also, you know, as you mentioned in the opening, that they they are more sensitive to where the information came from. Um, uh, if, it, if it was produced by a hack or doxing of someone, they at least seem more willing to say, you know, should we be reporting on it or it should be at least placed in the context of this is where the information came from. It may, in fact, be, you know, produced by Russian hackers. Okay. Uh, let me move then to that third set of responses that, or the third area, the third basket of tools that you mentioned, which was really messaging from the U.S. government um, that you can't 
to others who would be tempted to, to have these kinds of interventions, make these kinds of interventions, that if you do, there's a price to be paid. Uh, have we seen that happen in the U.S. at this point? Uh, maybe this leads us back into that controversy about uh, about the administration and and uh, assigning um, uh, responsibility for what happened. But has there been development of those kinds of messages or countermeasures uh, to potential or real um, hackers? Yeah, the problem is is that the the signaling from the administration has been completely uh, mixed and and. And on one hand, the the administration itself has gone a long way to calling out uh, the Russian hackers. Right? We had the 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 indictment of specific hackers. Um, we had the calling out of, uh, of Russia for being behind the the NotPetya uh, attack, which is a malware that um, spread wildly from Ukraine and affected a number of U.S. companies. Um, we've had uh, sanctions against individuals and companies. Um, so the administration, you know, itself through the Department of Justice and the State Department has kind of continued an Obama policy, administration policy of, of naming and shaming and being fairly clear about um, we can attribute these attacks to, to Russia and we are going to try and raise the cost. The problem, of course, is that the messaging from the president um, counteracts that, right? So just given the response to the press conference with President Putin and kind of calling into question the uh, intelligence agency's attribution uh, in many ways is, diminishes what the other parts of the administration are doing. As a result, has the U.S. government actually taken concrete actions um, that we know of against, uh, against this kind of interference? Uh, well, the indictments, um, there, were, there were sanctions from the Treasury uh, last week that were d- directed at specific individuals um, and um, Russian companies that support um, the hacking infrastructure. So those are specific uh, measures that the, that the Treasury did take. Um, but the larger issue and one that you, you see the Congress um, continually calling the administration uh, out about is you know, is is it enough, and is it possible to create a deterrent in cyberspace? And a lot of people hate that term and the the attempt to try to apply the idea of deterrence to cyberspace because um, they think it's going to be ineffective. Um, we do know that Cyber Command um, and the National Security Agency are working to disrupt um, Russian hackers and are taking a more forward leaning position. But all of that is really, quite honestly, out of sight and. And we don't really know what, what's going on. Yeah, and it strikes me that a lot of this is is defensive measures, right? If people are going to uh, try to hack in, what can we do to to avoid it uh, or, or to prevent it from happening? But uh, that's a hard game to win um, every single time. <laughs> and it only takes once to be able to get into a, a system. Are there more things that you think should be in play, more policies, more kinds of approaches that you, that you think should be being pursued um, at all or more vigorously than they are in order to, in order to safeguard the U.S.? Well, quite honestly, I think the, the, the biggest problem right now is just a kind of a coherent strategy. I think there are lots of small things that are happening that are in the right direction. So as I mentioned before, the increased funding for uh, election security at the local level, uh, the sanctions that come from the Treasury Department. But I think the, the larger problem is, is that we really don't have a consistent, coherent message. 
um, about what the U.S. wants to achieve in cyberspace um, and how we're going to respond. And, you know, part of that is is kind of a cross messaging from the president. Part of that is is personnel. Um, the the office of the cyber coordinator in the State Department was uh, eliminated under Secretary Tillerson. Um, Secretary Pompeo has said that they're going to restate, but right now uh, it's not a focus. And in the National Security uh, Council, that the cyber coordinator position has also been eliminated. So uh, I would be happy if we did a lot of the things we're doing now, but did them kind of more consistently um, with, a, with, a, with better signaling and messaging. And for listeners who are following this issue and the U.S. response, um, what are the most important things they should be paying attention to? You, you mentioned a few positions that, that should be filled, other, other kind of indications that we're moving in a, in a more positive direction to defend the U.S. What would those be? Well, I think one would be spending at the local level. And, and uh, quite honestly, the, mo- the most important thing is the, these voting machines with paper backups and, and, uh, and audits. That would probably go the longest, uh, go, go the furthest in, in, in making us uh, more secure. Um, I think also we, we need to begin, begin thinking about, you know, not only the, the midterms, which is clearly going to be a target, but um, other systems that are, that are um, going to be vulnerable to, 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 to hacks that play on this kind of extreme polarization that we're seeing right now. And then in addition, I want to go back to something that you talked about at the very beginning, which was the creation of international norms and understanding of appropriate um, cyber um, behavior and get a sense of is there is there work being done on on that on that level? Uh, one of the things that strikes me is even I ask a question is there's kind of an implicit kind of uh, in that idea of coming up with a common understanding is an idea of some sort of multilateral approach, some sort of uh, international agreement that goes beyond the United States. And in this administration, with its focus on the exercise of U.S. power um, and the resistance to multilateral approaches, are we pursuing, is the U.S. government pursuing um, establishing norms through some sort of mechanism to try to regulate this kind of behavior? So there, there was a process through the UN. It was called the Group of Government Experts that had been meeting um, and um, had been making some progress in identifying some norms of behavior. Uh, in 2013, it issued a report that all of the, the participants of those uh, 15 countries, including China and Russia, agreed that international law applied in cyberspace, and in particular, the UN Charter. And then in 2015, it released another report that identified four norms of behavior um, that had to do about uh, critical infrastructure and protecting computer and emergency response teams. Uh, Unfortunately, that process fell apart in 2017, uh, in part because of the obstructionism, in particular from Cuba, but also because the, the United States wanted to go further in how international law applies in cyberspace, and in particular, the right of self-defense. Uh, and the Chinese and Russians really have argued that we need new treaties in this space. Um, what's going to replace that process, or should it be restarted, uh, is now under discussion. 
Um, the Trump administration has said it, it doesn't oppose restarting the process, but it wants to work with like-minded countries, which which means you know Europe and others. The the problem is, as you as you noted, is is that you know the U.S. doesn't seem particularly engaged in multilateral institutions right now. Uh, and after the NATO summit, uh, alliance relations are not particularly particularly strong. So it's unclear how uh, the Trump administration believes it's going to start uh, developing and implementing those norms um, if it doesn't use the UN and if it doesn't use its alliances. Yeah. And how important is that? Is that is as we think about the long term security uh, against cyber attacks, is the establishment of these kind of uh, multilateral norms important? There's certainly a number of skeptics who would say no, that states right now are going to do what they can get away with in, in cyberspace um, and that the norm discussion is, is premature. Um, I, I tend to be slightly more optimistic. Um, I, I do think there are some areas um, where there are shared interests with the great powers, at least in uh, North Korea and Iran are probably harder cases. But I think Russia, China and the U.S., have some shared interest in making sure that uh, critical infrastructure does not go down and, and the core components of the Internet don't go down uh, because of uh, cyber conflict. Um, it's very hard to imagine how you move those discussions forward right now, just given the bilateral relationships with Beijing and, uh, and Moscow are so difficult. But uh, I have some optimism that under different political conditions, you could identify what those shared interests would be. And certainly these problems aren't going to go away anytime soon. Um, so there'll be <laughs> repeated opportunities to address these uh, issues, no doubt. So as we close, I just want to ask, what is the one thing that you would encourage our listeners to bear in mind um, in in this issue of cybersecurity in the long run? What are they paying attention to? What is the thing that's being neglected? Where should they focus their attention? Well, I think with cyber, we, we tend to always focus on the last battle, and that's part of the reason why we weren't expecting the influence operations. So, you know, there's a lot of talk on electoral systems right now. Um, I suspect that the, there is a new set of targets out there that we, that we just, we don't expect. I think you know, some people are beginning to pay attention to the census. Um, so you can imagine that uh, manipulating the census would be incredibly um, politically polarizing um, and would have effects that the, the electoral system uh, has now. Um, and I suspect that there are things out there that we that we just don't even aren't even aren't even thinking about. The other thing is that I think, um, you know, we tend to think of cyber as as separate from the physical world, but we're moving to uh, a world where they're, where they're just intertwined, right? And that, that has to do about the Internet of Things, all of the devices in our homes that were connected to the Internet uh, and our autos and, and other things. And so uh, in, in, the, in the future, we just won't be talking about cyber as something separate. It'll just be part of our, our everyday lives. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's uh, hopeful or if that should all give us uh, huge concerns. But certainly, um, you know, the bigger point of the, the ubiquity of these, these issues that are not going to go away. Uh, and the need to be able to manage them effectively uh, came through very strongly. Adam, thank you so much for taking us through these issues and really giving us far greater uh, insight than, frankly, we're getting in the in the day-to-day -day media of the current controversies. It was great to have you on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. 
I'm joined by David Sanger, who's the national security correspondent for The New York Times. And David has a new book called The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. Welcome, David. It's great to have you on Deep Dish. Good to be with you. So much of the public discussion right now around cybersecurity issues uh, focuses on election hacking. I'd like to go beyond those issues with you, because one of the things that I really appreciated about um, your book is that you lay out a number of cybersecurity threats that we're facing now and into the into the future. And in fact, I, one of the images that you have that I think really helps frame this discussion um, is that you liken cyber warfare to the introduction of warplanes and military combat as a you know really a game changer that we don't fully understand what the implications um, are right now, and we're still finding our, our way out. So to start off the conversation, let, let, me, just, let me just ask the question about, um, about elections. As people think about cybersecurity, certain, certainly elections are, are important, and election integrity is important. Is that seen as, as the most important cyber issue, or are there other issues that we need to be paying attention to as well? Well, imagine for a moment that we were having this discussion um, three years ago. Would we be saying that elections were the biggest issue? Nah, nobody had even thought about uh, that. We would be saying that taking out the electric grid, the sort of cyber Pearl Harbor, was the big issue of the day. And, in fact, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that our focus on the sort of cyber Pearl Harbor issues, the massive attacks, that would probably bring about a massive military response, blinded us in some ways to what we needed to be doing. And what we needed to be doing was looking at the broad array of cyber uh, activity. And that's everything from espionage, which I don't really deal with that much in the perfect weapon, because it's you know, just a new way of doing an old thing, to data manipulation, whether that's changing votes or changing web types in a military database, to affecting an actual physical um, set of equipment machinery, what the United States and Israel did to Iran during the Olympic Games, which was the code name for the attacks on the Iranian uh, nuclear plant, or what the U.S. attempted to do against North Korea's missiles, or what North Korea did against Sony. So you have to understand this as sort of a wide spectrum, and that's all why this is sort of the perfect weapon, because you can dial it up and you can dial it down, and of course, it's cheap and it's deniable. And, and who are the major players who are developing and actually exercising these kinds of capabilities? It's vastly more complicated than in the atomic age. You know, even this many years after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, we have uh, only nine nuclear powers in the world. Uh, both declared and undeclared. Whereas in cyber, of course, you've got state actors, 20, 30, 40. Uh, you've got criminal groups. You have potential the potential of terror groups. You have patriotic hackers, just people who are doing this because they want to stand up for their country. You have teenagers. You have vandals. You've got a huge variety and the number of targets is so much vaster than it was in the nuclear age, where you were basically targeting cities, big population areas. Here, 
the private sector is the biggest target, right? So if you wanted to go disrupt life in the United States, you'd go after the communication systems, you go after the utilities, and you might go after the, the voting system just to undercut confidence in democratic institutions. But you wouldn't stop there uh, as well. You could go after people's autonomous cars so that they were scared to get into their autonomous cars. The fact that we have connected so many things to the Internet means that there are far more vulnerabilities we have at home than we did five or ten years ago. Five or ten years ago, you didn't have an Alexa in your house. You didn't have an Internet-connected TV. You did not have a, um Internet-connected refrigerator. I've still never quite figured out why my refrigerator used to be Internet-connected, but I'm sure there's a reason. Um, cars did not have anywhere near uh, the portion of uh, the, the kind of electronics and the connectivity that they do today. So these are all reasons that the attack surface has increased even as our own cyber practices to get more secure have increased. The fact of the matter is our vulnerabilities are outpacing our improvements in security. So given that range of, of vulnerabilities, I think one way to help think through um, the consequences of those vulnerabilities is to think about a couple of different contexts. And one of those is how how cyber um, threats and cyber attacks could be used in combination with, a, in the context of a shooting war, where there are bullets flying or we're getting toward bullets flying and missiles going off. How could cyber attacks um, be part of a strategy for, uh, for a military conflict like that? Well, I take the conditional out of your question. They already are part of the strategy. And in the perfect wrapping, you'll read about a plan the United States had as vast uh, war plan that was called Nitro Zeus that would basically have unplugged Iran if we had gotten into a conflict with them. Fortunately, we didn't because the 2015 nuclear accord uh, was struck, although I, I understand there's some problems with that now. Uh, the, um, the fact of the matter is that all major powers are now integrating cyber into their war plans. And they start with the beginning of their war plans in the hopes that you could so cripple a country that you'd never have to fire a shot. That's what my Zeus is about. That's what we fear when we hear about uh, Russian uh, malware in our utility uh, grid. That's what we fear when we hear about the Chinese getting into or the Iranians getting into the financial grid. But you could see vast parts of infrastructure taken down at the opening days of the conflict. Uh, to preempt that conflict. And part of the difficulty here is you could have a partial cyber attack that's miscalculated about how the other side would respond, and you could go from a cyber uh, conflict to a shooting war pretty quickly. Yeah, when you say that, it reminds me of uh, nuclear deterrence, having grown up in the in the Cold War and been involved in debates over nuclear issues back in the, in the 80s. Uh, you know, I... I Nuclear deterrence was something that was built over time, and a lot of it was being able to interpret the intentions be behind the actions of of other actors. Is there any kind of an attempt to uh, establish that common vocabulary or that common uh, a, a set of tools to understand 
um, what's happening when you see somebody show up inside your system and you see them inside your utilities? How do you know what folks' intentions are, what other countries' intentions might be? So when you look at malware, you can't figure out its intentions. You can only figure out its capability. So uh, let's say you see malware in an electric grid uh, that's put in there by the Russians. Are they putting it in for psychological purposes just to show they can get in? Are they putting it in to prepare for a war and be able to shut things down? Are they putting it in to prepare for something short of war? If we got into a big diplomatic conflict and they want to show that you know, they could turn off just a city or a region, which is exactly what they did in Ukraine in 2014 and 2015. All kinds of different options out there. And the, the concern that you have is that the other side, just as in the nuclear world, could miscalculate your intentions. So you could see one city go out, and rather than concluding, well, that's the beginning and end of it, you could say that's the beginning of taking out all major American cities. And then you, could, you might speed up your military response. So in the nuclear age, we worked out with lots of different players all these signaling issues so that you wouldn't have unintentional escalation. You don't know how to do that in the cyber age because there are so many different players. In fact, when you see the malware put in your system, you probably don't know whether it's from a state or a non-state actor. Yeah, and it could be, uh, depending what its intention is, it could be critical to be able to make that determination quickly. So if that's the world in kind in the context of a, a more traditional military conflict, one of the things that we've seen is even in, quote, peacetime, like we have right now, that cyber uh, attacks are, are happening. What kinds of things are, are being done um, in, in this context of when there isn't a shooting war and we don't appear to be heading to a shooting war? Well... One of the things you could go do is begin to think about a uh, what Brad Smith at Microsoft and some other executives have called a cyber or a digital Geneva Convention. The, the real Geneva Conventions, the original Geneva Conventions, were all um, focused on protecting uh, civilians. And in fact, civilians these days feel like they are the collateral damage you know, caught in uh, a much bigger state-on-state conflict. So one of the um, one of the big uh, questions here is: Would this be a better way to go than, say, signing treaties? On the theory that a treaty in the cyber world would be outdated technologically by the time you negotiated it, mm-hmm. and probably would never even get through our Congress or those of many other countries. So let me ask you a question that combines kind of traditional defense deterrence thinking with the new cybersecurity threats. And, and specifically, uh, with the NATO summit, there's been a lot of focus on Article 5, an attack of one, uh, attack on one is an attack against all. Um, it, does that kind of thinking and those kinds of alliance relationships, do they, do they apply when it comes to, to cyber? Um, is, is a cyber attack something that would, that would trigger a broader alliance response? Well, on paper, yes. In reality, we don't know. Uh, NATO passed a resolution two or three years ago 
that said that a cyber attack could result in the invocation of Article 5, which of course is the article in which says an attack on one is an attack on all. But it never set any rules about the conditions under which we'd actually go do that, right? Just as Article 5 for conventional wars doesn't say what rises to that level. And you'll remember Article 5 has only been invoked once. It was the day after 9-11. It's right? come to, to our aid. Now, in a period of time where we've got a president of the United States who's questioning whether he would invoke or he would come to the aid of countries if Article 5 is invoked, if they hadn't paid enough into NATO, uh, we haven't even gotten to the question of whether you would come to the aid of a country that was attacked in a cyber way. Uh, and we haven't seen it tested yet. One part of the book that uh, I think your, your uh, listeners might be interested in is the part that discusses how NATO is so hopelessly behind on cyber that for years their cyber defense center was open 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. It was almost an advertisement to the Russians to say, hey, try an attack on the weekend. <laughs> Even today, those defenses are focused on protecting NATO's own, you know, headquarters communication systems. When I went to them and I said, okay, I'd like to talk to you about your offensive plan. I mean, you have an offensive nuclear plan in which you would basically call on nuclear states to go use their nuclear weapons if the old Soviet Union came through the whole the gap. What's the equivalent cyber plan? And they looked at me with this look and said, we don't have one. So if NATO doesn't have one, uh, and I know you've got a plane boarding uh, uh, very soon and your time is limited, but what should the U.S. policy agenda be to respond to these kinds of cyber threats? What should our priorities be, and what should we as, as citizens who, as you point out, are oftentimes in the front lines of these kinds of attacks, what should we look for in terms of what the government can do to help provide protection? Well, you know, I thought that the... Uh, Trump administration was also a good start. They had hired uh, Tom Bossert as the Homeland Security Advisor, who had worked in the Bush administration, knew a lot about cyber. They brought in Rob Joyce as the cybersecurity coordinator. He had run the uh, NSA's Tailored Access Operations Unit. That's the unit that um, does offensive attacks against other countries. And, of course, the one... You want to put somebody in charge of defense who's done offense for a living, right? Same reason you hire retired bank robbers to do bank security, right? So um, what happened? When John Bolton came in as the national security advisor, he ousted both of them within about a week, and then he got rid of the homeland. He got rid of the cybersecurity coordinator job. So I think we've taken a big step backward because that is the job where you begin to go sort out all of the different competing agendas of the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense, the NSA, all the other agencies that have pieces of this. And a lot of agencies that don't think about it, but needed to, think of the Office of Personnel Management, which lost uh, so many of its own records uh, to the Chinese. So as we close, David, what would you recommend our listeners pay attention to that's maybe undercovered or underappreciated as they continue to follow the developments and responses to cybersecurity threats? Well, I think we have to look at whether or not the government's really got its act together, whether you're convinced that there is a viable plan on both defense and on offense. And if you don't if you don't hear the kind of attention being paid to it that you're hearing to, 
uh, are other military plans, and you have to begin to wonder how vulnerable you are. There's a certain amount you can do yourself, two-factor authentication, you know, where codes sent back to your cell phone, other kinds of things to make sure your passwords are up to date, but that's not going to help you against a state attacker. Terrific. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us in between flights, and also thank you for your, your book. I, I think it does a superb job of laying out this landscape of, of threats and the agenda of what uh, we need to be thinking about, uh, not just as, as a government, but also uh, as citizens, to uh, respond to what clearly is going to be a growing and increasingly important uh, foreign policy threat. Thanks very much, David, for coming on Deep Dish. Thank you, and uh, thanks for all the work you guys do at the Council. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And if you like the show, please let us know by tapping the subscribe button on your podcast app so you, you can receive each episode as it comes out. You can find us under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy this episode especially, please take a moment and tap the share button to send it to them as well. If you have questions about anything you heard today or if you want to know about upcoming episodes in advance and submit questions for upcoming guests, please join our Facebook group, which you can find under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This episode of Deep Dish was produced by Evan Fazio. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.